Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Ivan Krastev, der er en god ven af Dagbladet Information og en af de forfattere, som vi med stor fornøjelse udgiver på vores forlag. Krastev har en helt særlig analytisk begavelse, som vi indleder samtalen med at tale om. Han er i stand til at overskue meget svært gennemskuelige magtspil og problematikker. Han er i stand til at samle dele, som vi andre kan have svært ved at få samlet i nogle originale fortolkninger, der hjælper os andre med at prøve at forstå, hvad der er på spil der hjælper os andre med at gennemskue fronterne i de kampe, som vi står midt i. Han er født og opvokset i Østeuropa bag kommunismens tæppe, men til gengæld dannet i Vesteuropa og forstår den vestlige tænkning. Han ved, hvordan det er at være uden for Vesten. Han ved, hvordan det er at være i Vesten. På en eller anden måde er hans liv en forberedelse til det meget dramatiske moment, vi gennemlever netop nu. Krastev har udgivet bøgerne Efter Europa og Hvornår er det i morgen, som vi har udgivet her på Dagbladet Informationsforlag. Men tidligere på året, der udgav han sammen med European Council on Foreign Relations, hvor han sidder i bestyrelsen, den meget interessante undersøgelse United West Divided from the Rest, Global Opinion One Year into Russia's War on Ukraine. Det er den undersøgelse, der er udgangspunktet for vores samtale her. Jeg spørger til, hvordan det kan være, at Vesten er blevet så isoleret, samtidig med, at Vesten er blevet så forenet. Jeg spørger til, var der noget, som Vesten kunne have gjort anderledes, der ville have skabt den større og bredere opbakning imod Putin. Jeg spørger ham, hvordan skal vi forholde os til, at det globale syd, som engang var et progressivt kampråb, en drøm om en ny og bedre verden, i dag er blevet et slogan for autoritære ledere som Modi, Xi Jinping og Ramaphosa i Sydafrika. Vi tager en tur med Ivan Krastev rundt i hele verdensordenen, de symbolske, konkrete militære og økonomiske kampe, og vi kommer også til at tale om, hvad han tror, der kommer til at afgøre krigen i Ukraine. Hello. Hello, Ivan. How are you? I'm fine. Well, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us again. One thing I've wondered, because we've, you know, we've read your books and translated some of them into Danish, appreciated your comments and your way of thinking a lot, is that you have a very uh, original way of thinking, that you manage to take highly complex issue and sometimes condense them into very exact paradoxes or juxtapositions or phrases that stick with us, uh, like uh, the European Union has always been an idea in search of a reality. You make these sentences that make us think and stick with us. How did you develop this way of thinking and writing? I've been always interested in literature. And when you're interested in literature, basically you know that words matter. Uh, But secondly, at least my idea of working always is that I'm trying to find a small insight, something that is I cannot understand that does not make sense for me. And when basically you're trying to understand this, This is giving you a big picture. Just to give you an example, uh, when we have been working with Stephen Holmes on uh, the line that failed, what shocked us was that in 2004, President Putin could have easily win free and fair elections in Russia. But nevertheless, he decided to rig that. So <laughs> why are you rigging the elections if you can basically win them free and fair? And when basically you ask questions like this, You're understanding the meaning of the elections in the Russian political system, that it is much more not about selecting the leader, 
but trying to show that there is no alternative. And this type of things were very, very important for me in order to understand. So I always start with something that puzzles me, that does not make sense. And when you try to understand how does it make sense, this is how my things, uh, how my thinking works. Do you think it has been, we've been discussing a lot here at the newspapers, how over the last seven or eight years, I think from the migration crisis, through the pandemic, of course, to the war in Ukraine, and with the Brexit as well, that it has become, the world has become more unpredictable and more difficult to analyze. But to a certain extent, and this is, it sounds cynical, also more stimulating to analyze. No, listen, for sure. Because in a certain way, the the biggest challenge for any human being is to understand the world in which you're living. And on one level, it's scary, but on the other level, it's so exciting intellectually. Try to make sense. And secondly, because most of us now try to make sense for ourselves, we are not so much ready to believe in the way others are telling us <laughs> what is really going on. So from this point of view, we're living in an incredibly interesting world uh, in which... Uh, Kind of, it's not easy to predict uh, the future. It's even not easy to predict the past. Uh, and as a result of it, basically, uh, I do believe that for, from intellectual point of view, this is one of the most uh, amazing times we have ever been through. I think many of us grew up in, at least I grew up with after the 20th century, knowing that what happened in Europe was to a certain extent also world events. That what was taking place here were something that was being looked upon throughout the world. This was the stage of the world, like Hegel would say. And I think for many of us, the Ukraine war is kind of understanding that we are not the center of, of, of the world anymore, that this is the almost existential experience, that we are a region and that people are watching it from outside, and this is not their drama and, and their history. How do you see this? Totally agree with you. Listen, to discover that you're periphery, is a kind of a painful exercise but it is exactly how it is because in a certain way if you go historically in the beginning of the 20th century uh, europe was the world because all these european empires that have been running the world and it's not by accident that what we're calling first world war also european war and uh, then comes uh, the second world war obviously the destruction of Europe. And during the Cold War, the two major parties uh, that have been the two major countries that have been shaping the environment, Soviet Union and the United States, of course, there was not typical European countries, but at the same time, Europe was the major stage on which everything was happening. Everything was, was going to happen in Berlin. And then came the end of the Cold War, and then the idea for Europe was, okay, we're not the most powerful, probably we are for sure not the most populous, but we're the laboratory of the world to come. So we're basically everything that we're developing, people are going to be interested in what we're doing. And then suddenly, I do believe you're totally right, with the Ukrainian crisis, you understand that we're one of the regions of the world. And this is how the others basically perceives you. They said, why do you expect us to be interested in your conflict when you're not interested in ours? And this is, you're hearing this very strongly, for example, from Africa and others, they said, why we should be interested in Ukraine if you're not interested in what is happening in Sudan or what is happening in Ethiopia? And for us, it is kind of surprise because we said, but listen, but we are Europe. Uh, and they said, okay, but it, Europe is not with a capital E anymore. And this is also an interesting story. And I do believe this is particularly tragic uh, for, for the Ukrainians because 
they go to some of these countries and some of these leaders and said, listen, your story is our story. This is a recolonization war. We like you. Uh, and don't forget, for East Europeans, this was a very interesting moment because while some of the West European countries have been colonial empires, uh, East Europeans basically have been born out of the states, were born out of the end of colonization, basically the, the end of the Habsburg Empire, the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it's not, by the way, by accident that some of the most kind of important European writers on colonialism have been Poles. Joseph Conrad, Richard Kapuczynski. This is not by accident. When Kapuczynski was going to Africa in the 1960s and 70s, was saying, don't tell me what colonialism is. I'm Paul. <laughs> uh, and, but now you go there you, and tell to these African leaders, listen, it's a recolonization war. And they said, no, no, no. It's not the same. You're white. Uh, your allies are the former colonial empires. And this is one of the small ironies of history. In 1919, during the uh, Paris peace talks, when basically Versailles Treaty was signed, many of the leaders of the third world, for example, Ho Chi Minh and others, went to Paris. They tried to talk to Wilson and said, we also get had to have become independent. We also want self-determination. And the message was, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about <laughs> Europeans and how the story is we go there and they're telling us it's not about you. But on the other hand, looking at the BRICS summit last uh, week in, in, in Johannesburg, we get the feeling, as you write in the analysis that you did with uh, Timothy Garzanash and, and, and um, Mark Leonard, saying, well, on the one hand, this is a unification of the West and a consolidation of the West. On the other hand, the West is also becoming a region in, in the world. So we're stronger internally, but externally weaker. But then on the other hand, what is uniting these 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 leaders with very different interests and with conflicting interests, China and India, they're together. It seems like they share our obsession with the, with, with the West. So on the one hand, we're in the periphery, but we're also the center uniting the others. No, no, you're totally right, because in a certain way, their identity was very much constituted in opposition to us. And this is basically the problem of post-colonial identities, because you define yourself through your resentment towards the former colonial empires. You also are in a difficult position because on one level, you want to imitate many of the things that the West have been doing on the level of the development of culture. And on the other side, you hate it for doing this. Uh, and I do believe that this is critically important because what we're seeing with BRICS, and this is quite important to see, particularly now when they're trying to expand and when basically the idea is that there is a shift of power, these countries are not united. From this point of view, this is not an alliance. Uh, what has changed, and in my view, this is quite important because we like to talk about the return of the Cold War. There is no return of the Cold War. Uh, Cold War, by the way, was the peak of the Western influence because both rival powers have their origin in the European Enlightenment. The, the Cold War was who is the legitimate son of the Enlightenment, Soviet communism or Western liberalism. And as a result of it, basically, everybody was speaking kind of a Western language. Uh, all these kind of a Marxist leaders who were talking uh, uh, in Africa, they were not talking about their traditions. They were trying to talk about the non-existing working class in their places. Uh, but now what we're seeing is very much fragmentation. 
And as a result of these fragmentations, many of the conflicts and wars that you're seeing is not the clash of ideologies, but the clash of identities. And this is why it is so different. And during the Cold War, basically every war was looking as a proxy war. Uh, everybody should take sides. If you don't go basically with uh, the uh, with the Americans, you should go with the Soviets. And those who are trying to create a non-aligned movement, they're still basically saying, okay, we're together because this is the only way not to take sides. Now we're seeing something totally different. The work is going fragmented. Of course, it's also very much polarized, particularly between Russia and China on one side and the West on the other. But all these new powers and this kind of a middle power, some of them very big like India, others much smaller, but very important in their regions, they're fighting for relevance. They're using this crisis to say we are important. You cannot ignore us. They're the most activists. Look at Turkey. When people are talking about these countries and they said they're sitting on the fence, do you have the feeling that Turkey is sitting or Emirates are sitting? They're running. They're running all the time. And for them, the most important is to try to convince us to view them in the way they're viewing themselves. And this kind of a fight for sovereignty and recognition, in my view, is very different than the fight of the Cold War. What kind of the models you want to impose? What kind of a models you're going to adopt? The Western model or the Soviet model? Many of these countries basically are in a situation in which it's even not easy to decide other democracies or autocracies, particularly when we talk about authoritarianism these days. I have the feeling that we're in a situation totally opposite to the famous saying about pornography. You, you remember this definition that we know how to define pornography, but when we're going to see it, we're going to recognize it. <laughs> the authoritarianism these days is we can define it, but when we're going to see it, we're not sure that we're going to recognize it. So so, so something that strikes me looking at the BRICS country uh, is that a lot of what they are saying about the West It's the same that the left has been saying here for decades, that it's the Western fall, we've been arrogant, the colonial history, the imperial history, and the global financial institutions are rigged in favor of, of the West. The West is overly represented in the G7 and the IMS. F is basically run by the United States. So this resonates here with the left. And the left is saying, well, yes, we've been, it's all our fault. Everything is to blame on, on us. But then when we look at the leaders saying it, they're almost, I know it's difficult to say whether right wing or left wing, but they're definitely not progressive liberals. Totally. And you absolutely, listen, it goes, uh, the irony goes even further. If you see some of the far right people, particularly when they talk about migration, they're talking absolutely in the way the anti-colonial leaders have been talking in the 1960s. They're talking about the indigenous population. Uh, they're talking about the fear of others coming and basically <laughs> replacing you. So from this point of view, we're in a really difficult situation because decolonization and reference to decolonization has replaced the, uh, the references to the Cold War. This is why democracy authoritarianism story does not work in the way it was working. But on the other side, many of these governments, even those that have freely elected government, they're not progressive. Uh, in a certain way, and also what is critically important, uh, they do not have the idea of any type of a universal solidarity. Uh, the idea of the solidarity is very much kind of a confined to your own group. Basically, Africans are going to stay with Africans, but they don't care about Indians, not simply about the whites. And funnily enough, they expect that the only one which are universalists should be Europeans. 
you know, all this criticism uh, that, uh, for example, Eastern Europeans, which were so reluctant to get refugees from Middle East, were so open to the Ukrainian refugees. But funnily enough, this is what you're seeing in most of the world. In a certain way, the frame of solidarity is very much defined by history, by geography. In a certain way, you're not you're most easily identifying with the war, in which you basically see the villain as somebody which was your historical villain. It's much more difficult to identify with the war that you don't understand. But while for many of these countries it's totally normal when they're doing this, the expectations that Europeans are going to be different. And I do believe this is one of the interesting stories about Europe. We have been pretending that we are different ourselves for a long time. And suddenly, uh, exactly what you're saying, we don't know what to do with this discourse because people who are criticizing uh, Europe or the West, they're doing this very much with the arguments that have been invented in the West. Uh, and then we don't know what to do because on one level, we try to defend our system because we still believe that we are living in a system which is much more inclusive and much more progressive. And even when you understand very much where the sources of anger of some of these governments come from, you don't want to be a citizen of many of these states. You don't want to be a citizen of Egypt. You basically don't want to enjoy the rights of Saudi Arabia. Arabia. But on the other side, you don't know how to talk about this. And I do believe one of the major stories about this crisis is that, yes, we understand that we are certain type of periphery and certain type of European universalism have been changed. And Europe is really making a choice. Till yesterday, we were seeing ourselves as missionaries. As I said, we had been basically the laboratory of the world to come. We expected that people are going to adopt our lifestyle. And this is just the time issue when they're going basically to see the world in the way we're seeing this. Now from a missionary, we're starting to look like a monastery. <laughs> we're trying basically to defend what we have because we're trying to understand that many of the things that are important for us are not shared by others. By the way, this is the most important things, of course, is on the level of the uh, cultural issues, sexual rights. The biggest divide goes basically on gay marriages and things like this, uh, which are uh, very, very unacceptable at the same moment, in the same day in which uh, Germans uh, basically have adopted their latest uh, legislation about uh, sexual difference. Basically, certain persons have been killed in some of the African countries for being homosexuals. And this is the other story. And by the way, this is something that people are not talking much about. If you see the Cold War, with the clash between the West and Russia, and why, and when you see how both sides were trying to gain allies, you're going to see that the strength, of course, uh, of the Soviets was uh, that they're trying to apply to the anti-imperialism sentiment of some of these colonies. It's not by accident. They have been supporting South Africa, Angola, and so on. Where was the strength of the West? We tried to pretend it was very much about freedom, but particularly in many of these countries, West was perceived that as a conservative modernity because communist project was extremely radical on two issues, abolition of private property, and it was strongly anti-religious, kind of a radical secularism. Well, the West basically was protecting private property and Western societies have been much more religious, particularly the United States in this period. So you have your 
allies among the traditionalist elites and groups. So now we're in a situation in which we are the former imperial power, but also we are the radical party, while the Chinese and the Russians are the conservatives. They're talking family values. They said, don't kill God. They said, we don't want to touch you. And I do believe this kind of a change is also something that uh, very few people are noticing. And uh, this explains many of the, of the things that you're seeing these days. For example, people going on the streets to defend the military coup d'etat in Africa and everything being justified uh, through anti-imperialism and trying to protect the traditional identities. Looking at the war in Ukraine, I think some would say here, and I, I think I thought that about a year ago, that the way we approached it as a discourse, saying, well, this is a democracy against autocracy, and everybody who's not with us, they're not a real democracy. So goodbye, India, and goodbye, Indonesia. And this almost equalizing the West with the world. And, and the, it seemed like there, it was just the only mobilizing language that we knew then we it could be said, well, we did not appeal to the rest of the world. We could have spoken in the words of uh, the Kenyan UN ambassador, Kimani, who yes. said th this is not about democracy and autocracy. This is about rule of law, basically. This is about defending small countries against bigger countries. Do you think that the way that we kind of lost the support from the rest of the world is out of mistakes that we made? Or is it something that would have happened inevitably? Listen, I don't believe that if we have totally changed the discourse, this was going to bring everybody on our side. But I, from the very beginning, was a major opponent and critic of framing this in the terms of uh, democracy, autocracy, because also this is not helping us to understand the nature of the war. Listen, this counterintuitive, we cannot check it. But my argument is that even if Ukraine was an authoritarian state, even if their government wanted to be a sovereign government, independent from Russia, they were going to be invited. It was not simply about democracy versus authoritarianism. This was very much about creating a Russian ethnic national state on the territory of uh, the victorious of the former Soviet Union, particularly Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. And I'm going to tell you why I find this very important and why, for me, the identity wars are very much different than a classical ideological wars from the Cold War period. Both communism and Western liberalism were fighting to whom the future belongs. Both of them were very much future-oriented. And both of them were universalist. And uh, what you're seeing now is something totally different. The fight is not for the future. The fight is for the past. Uh, uh, unlike Marx, basically, uh, President Putin uh, was writing a historical essays before he decided uh, to start the, the full-fledged uh, invasion in Ukraine. And secondly, this is also an identity war in a moment in which uh, the world is in identity panic uh, because all these kind of identities that have been seen as very firm before have been very much questioned. National identity, sexual identities, everything. And in order to understand the nature of the Russia-Ukrainian war, in my view, the best is to compare with the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s. Because the Yugoslav war of the 1990s was a kind of a classical 19th century war in which you basically have one ethnic group uh, trying to expel the minorities, trying to have ethnic homogeneity. The slogan was, why me to be minority in your country when you can be minority in mine? Hmm. And this type of an ethnic uh, uh, ethnic uh, expulsion was done by 
Serbs, by the Croats, and of course, but nobody was questioning the fact that there is a Serbian identity, or Croatian identity, or Bosnian identity. And then comes uh, the Russia war in Ukraine, where basically this is not that the Russians wants to get their land and to expel the Ukrainians. They're saying Ukrainians are Russians. They're killing them to recognize that they're Russians. So this is not exclusion. This is a genocidal inclusion. On one side, you have ethnic cleansing. On the other side, you have kidnapping of kids because you're kidnapping the kids because you claim that this is your kids and they're just trying to make them Ukrainians. And I do believe this kind of a distinction is very important. And when the Cold War ended, of course, there was a different hypothesis what is going to come next. We know, of course, the, uh, the story uh, 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 Frank Fukuyama, which was very much the modernization theory. This is a convergence. This is, uh, this is the end of history. But also there was uh, uh, basically Huntington's clash of civilizations. But listen, he believes that civilizations has a firm identities, that everybody knows who is Russian and who is Ukrainian and who is Turk. I do believe the person who got it most was, uh, in fact, um, uh, uh, basically the German poet and essayist uh, uh, Hans uh, Enzenberger. When in 1992-1993, he basically said, what is coming is a civil war but the global civil war. And he put together the war in Bosnia, uh, the uh, the race riots in the United States, what was happening in Africa. And he was talking about this uh, molecular civil war, where you have a lot of violence, which does not need any more ideology in order to justify it. I'm saying this because even if you go into the domestic politics of many of the countries, civil wars has become much more important than real wars. For example, America during the Cold War was very much preoccupied with the experience of the World War II. Mm. Look at the American debate now. Everything is about American civil war. It was about slavery. It was about basically the identities there. And in my view, this kind of a mentality of a civil war, fragmentation and polarization at the same time is a reality, and this reality is very different than we know from the Cold War years. This is why I don't believe that the idea that we're just having a clash between democracy and autocracy, that this is return of the Cold War, helps us to understand. So answering your question, yeah, if we have been, I believe that we should have talked about sovereignty and violation of territorial integrity. If we're going to speak about this, it was not going to guarantee us that we're going to do better. People are going to tell us, but what about Kosovo? But what about Taiwan? And so on. So it's not an easy conversation, even this one. But at least this was a conversation that they are going to understand better and identify better. But even knowing that even this language was not going to be enough uh, to get an allies, I do believe that by speaking democracy versus autocracy, we do not help ourselves to understand exactly what is happening in the world. Yeah, which does not mean, by the way, that there is no difference between democracies and autocracies and that they, but it means that at the moment, the biggest problem in the world is not uh, that uh, they're democracies and autocracies, that in many places we cannot make a difference between them. We cannot understand certain countries on Monday, we're going to call a democracy if it fits us. And on Friday, we're going to call authoritarian regime. By the way, India is one of all this story about electoral autocracies and so on, a great example of this. Something that you write about in the other analysis you did for European Council of Foreign Affairs is the, about Europe. 
is the way that we have kind of two Americas in Europe, the America of Donald Trump. And when Donald Trump was president, you had Angela Merkel saying we should take responsibility for own protection. You had the European Commission starting talking about uh, geopolitics and strategic autonomy. Now that you have Joe Biden's America, the old America, the, it's, it, we're relying heavily on America yet again. And it seems to me that it's very difficult for Europeans to keep the two Americas in the head at the same time. That either we're we're trying to liberate ourselves from America because it could be governed by Donald Trump in, in two years, or we're depending on America because Joe Biden is, is the old American. How do you see this dilemma of the two Americas in Europe? No, listen, this is going to be the major conversation in the next 12 months, because the closer the American elections come, the more basically the specter of Trump winning, even if he's not going to win, basically, the, the very realization that he can come back and he's going to be much more radical and it's, he's going to be much more different than the first Trump, which was kind of unknown to us, uh, is uh, going to be the big story. And he is the, you are totally right, this is a kind of a, uh, extremely important paradox, but in order to answer it, we should try to understand why the war in Ukraine was kind of so destabilizing for Europe. Because in my view, it uh, challenged four major assumptions on which European idea of security and basically role of Europe as a geopolitical player was based. Listen, first we managed to convince ourselves that a major war is not possible in Europe. Hmm. Not in the world. We were not so naive. And by the way, one of the interesting books to read is uh, The Breaking of Nations of Robert Cooper, who was talking about three worlds, the postmodern world of Europe, the modern world of countries like Russia, United States, China, and the failed states uh, uh, somewhere uh, in some of the third world countries. And he said, we need three different ethics, three different strategies about this. But no, we were sure that in Europe, a major war is not possible. And even more, when the war started, our assumptions that economic interdependence is enough to basically guarantee the peace in Europe was challenged dramatically. People like to talk about Nord Stream 2 and talk about commercial project. Nord Stream 2 was not a commercial project. Nord Stream 2 was a security project. Basically, Germans has developed a strategy, and this was the experience after World War II, that basically you are pacifying countries by trading excessively with them. And the message was, we're going to buy so much Russian oil and gas that they're never going to attack us. And it didn't work like this. And by the way, this kind of a trying to understand everything in economic terms was also one of the things that basically uh, forced us to get uh, Mr. Putin wrong. Do you remember all this constant talk about how corrupt Russian regime is? Listen, Russian regime is very corrupt. Uh, but for us, it was not a threatening, but in a certain way, reassuring talk. Because if somebody is very corrupt, he's very interested in money. And if somebody is very much interested in money, he's not interested in a war. So we, of course, uh, despise their yachts and way of life, but it was reassuring. They're about pleasures of life. But listen, the fact that a leader uh, of a nuclear power is simply inter interested only in his bank account uh, is a theory that can come in the mind of a badly paid assistant professor in the university. But this is not how the history works. He was obsessed with the idea of a history with capital 
age. He was believing that he's going to consolidate his nation. Yes, Russia was incredibly corrupt, but it does not mean that it cannot start a war. And we saw it happening. Secondly, what was very much basically a challenge because of the war in Ukraine is uh, European convictions that military power doesn't matter anymore. We would, particularly after Americans' uh, performance in Iraq, we said, okay, they were so powerful, so what? What did they achieve? And we said, no, the only thing that matters is economic power and soft power. As a result of it, uh, our military, we have a big military budgets, but part of our military budget is social spending. Uh, uh, the, when the war started, uh, Ukrainians had ammunitions for six weeks, but Germany had ammunitions for two days. So as a result of it, we discovered that we need a hard power, but the hard power was only an American power. And this is why the relations with the United States changed overnight, because Europe, we were telling ourselves uh, that we're independent geopolitical player. But when the war came back, we understand that like in the Cold War, uh, the Western Europe was the protectorate of the United States. Now, the whole of European Union is. Uh, and I, and the third thing that comes, and in my view, this is also very important and extremely less discussed. Ukraine and the performance of the Ukrainians also challenged our idea of how the world functions. Listen, uh, uh, here, by the way, Americans and Europeans shared a similar view. When the war started, Americans were right that, that Russia is going to start the war. We didn't want to believe, but both Europeans and Americans believe that Russians are going to win over three weeks because all of us are talking how dysfunctional Ukraine is and so on. And, and listen, part of it is right. Of course, there was a major problem. There was corruption. There was this, this was that. But we have forgotten the important power of civic nationalism, the readiness to die for your country. Europe was very much kind of subscribing for Brechtian idea that you feel pity for country that needs heroes. <laughs> but at some point, you need heroes. You need heroes in order to survive. And this is why the, the war also made it very critical, uh, this power of, uh, of civic nationalism. And this is why this war is a European moment, because Europeans understand that we needed each other. And this is why basically the European unity was there. But it is also a very strong nationalist moment. And we should not have any illusions about this. Listen, in the beginning of the 21st century, Everything that you're going to see on television was the European flags <clears throat> if or basically in Arab Spring. But now it is Ukrainian flags in our capitals. And, and I do believe this, all this so much shared uh, European society's idea about what the world is about, what is going to happen, that for us, America was needed because we had to decide about our own identity. So from this point of view, uh, it is not simply that this war has created a totally different Ukrainian identity, very much anti-Russian, which was not the case even five years ago, like this being so much. It, of course, changed dramatically Russia's identity. It is changing very much European identity, the identity of European Union. And also people were talking very much the war, of course, created uh, very important tensions between East and West when the war started. For example, if you see the ECFR polling, uh, West Europeans believe that what they're really afraid of is a nuclear war. Uh, Poles and the Bolts, they say that they fear occupation. Uh, this is not the same fear. 
Uh, and also not simply that East and West have been in a kind of a, a much more dramatic uh, uh, tension and suddenly the East has the feeling that we were right when we insisting that uh, Russia is a threat. So we have our 15 minutes of moralizing and lecturing the West, particularly Germany and France. Uh, but secondly, you can see that East also disintegrated. There is not a unified Eastern Europe. Suddenly what came back was the borders of the old empires. The countries that have been part of the Russian empire, not the Soviet one, the Baltics, the Poles, they see this war as their war. But then you see the Bulgarians, the Serbs, the Greeks that have been part of the Ottoman Empire. And they said, yeah, what the Russians are doing is wrong, but we should be more careful and so on. Identification with Ukraine on the level of public opinion is totally not the same. And then, of course, you have the Habsburgs and like, like always, they're in the middle. So looking at the war now, one and a half years in, with this dependence on, on America and the way you say, which is a very precise way of putting it, the ghost of Trump is coming closer and closer to us. I think it's very hard to find out who has the time advantage in this war, because on the one hand, we're looking ahead to the American election with listen to what the Republicans are saying during their primaries. And we fear that support for Ukraine, military support will, will go down. On the other hand, we look at Russia. We see the ruble is crumbling. And in the beginning of the war, I think we overestimated Putin. He was like the phantasmagorical other, this genius of strategy, this uh, omnipotent leader who could take Ukraine in a, a week or two. And now we see that he's being forced to assassinate Prigozhin in front of the entire country, which is a horrifying regime. So he seems weakening internally. The U.S. is fragile internally. We have a stalemate in the battlefield. I know this is a difficult question. But in your view, who has the advantage of the clocks here? Listen, of course, this is changing, and this is about the war. Uh, the battlefield is critically important for what is happening. But in the first year uh, of the war, every minute in which Russians were not winning, they were losing. But in the second year, every moment the Ukrainians are not winning, they are losing. Because uh, the damages on both sides are very asymmetrical. Listen, we are always going in exaggeration on one direction or the other. First, we believe that Putin is going to destroy Ukraine in three weeks and so on. Exactly what you say. He's overpowerful. Then, uh, eight months later, we were sure that he's going to collapse just in a weeks. And you remember all these stories, all the newspapers, uh, every day there were going to be a coup. He's very sick and so on. So... Putin is neither as powerful as people have been claiming, nor as weak as we have been hoping. This is a regime which is kind of a very rigid and it can break down, but it can also stay. And we don't know for how long it can stay. And it has financial resources, at least for the next two or three years. On the Ukrainian side, we're also in the same game. In the beginning, we said Ukrainians, they can do nothing. Do you know one of the reasons why Americans were not giving them uh, enough modern weapons in the beginning? Because they believe that the Russians are going to capture the weapons after this three weeks war. So all the story was that Ukrainians are going to have a partisan war. So we are imagining uh, what is going to happen after the Russian invasion to look like Afghanistan, where Poland is going to be in the role of Pakistan. But in a certain way, but Ukrainians shows capacity, not simply courage, but capacity to fight. They showed absolutely military genius on the level of the middle level commanders. And then we went on the other extreme. 
we said, listen, they're so good that they're going to win. All this destruction of the Ukrainian economy doesn't matter. The fact that basically more than 50,000 people has amputation of legs or, or, or arms doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that basically uh, there is so much minefields in Ukraine that for if they're going to demine with the pace in which they're demining now, it's going to take 700 years. So we're really not looking inside Ukrainian society and see the very high cost that they're paying for. Also, incredible demographic cost. 20% of the Ukrainian children are outside of the country. <clears throat> so from this point of view, we're in a difficult situation. And uh, I, I was writing this uh, uh, even a year ago. I do believe that uh, in modern world, basically, wars did not end on a battlefield and they don't want even on a diplomatic table. They end up in... Um, election boxes. Basically, American war in Vietnam ended with uh, the specific vote of uh, uh, of the Americans. And this is what happened with the French war in Algeria. And as a result of it, uh, what is going to happen in uh, Russian-Ukrainian war is going to be really strongly influenced by several elections which are going to take place in the next year. First, in 2024, we're going to have presidential elections in Russia. You believe that this election does not matter? They do, not because we don't know who's going to be elected, but because basically this is going to show how the society sees what is going around. And I do believe one of the reasons uh, Mr. Prigozhin uh, had to be killed is that uh, President Putin didn't like the talk that he can run for president. For sure he was not going to run for president. Nobody was going to register him to run for president. But even this talk was destabilizing. Secondly, you're going to have the decision of the Ukrainians to have or not to have elections. On one level, it's extremely difficult to have a normal elections in a country under martial law where part of your territory is occupied, where basically many of the people are in uniform. But on the other, Russians are insisting that they're going to have an elections because they want to show that they have elections. Ukrainians do not have elections. So who is the democracy? Uh, uh, certainly, we're going to have elections in Taiwan. And Taiwan elections are going to be critically important because it's <clears throat> really going very much to shape also Chinese policy to the conflict. If the China believes that you're going to have a government in Taiwan, which starts to look uh, very much like the Ukrainian government, probably they can decide to help their Russian friends to intensify. They can decide to provide weapons. They can decide to do certain things. Then you have European elections, which are going to test basically the support and the consensus of Europe, the unity of supporting the, the war. And you know, European elections are the elections in which protest parties and extreme parties are always performing best. And then you have American elections that can change everything. People are very much talking these days, can we have a negotiations, a kind of a, any type of a solution before the American elections? If you're President Putin, are you going not to wait for the American elections? Are you not going to wait, basically, to see if Trump is going to be elected? Uh, and as a result of it, we're in a very difficult situation. And we, particularly, this is difficult for the Ukrainians because they understand that uh, major change in the United States, by the way, is also going to affect the unity of Europe. They're going to be governments which are going to side with Trump. And uh, as a result of it, uh, this kind of a war is going to move very much 
into the electoral wars that are coming. And this is why the border between uh, domestic politics and foreign policy is really going to be very much blurred uh, in Europe and in America. And to just to give you an example how it looks like, you know that Poland is a country that was very strongly supporting Ukraine. They got millions of refugees. They're the major logistic hub through which the support goes. But when the Polish elections now starting to approach, suddenly Poland basically bent the export of the Ukrainian uh, grain mm. through Poland. And keep in mind, the grain is as important for the Ukrainian economy as gas and oil for the Russian one. 50% of all foreign currency earnings of the Ukrainian state come from exporting grain. So then suddenly Ukrainians uh, realize that they don't have a border with Poland. They have a border with the Polish elections and it's a different border. Now, the war in Ukraine that we're following intensely is being decided in election booths all over the world, actually. Yeah, totally. Well, I hope, Ivan, that you will take your time and let us return and talk to you next year when we have all these elections running and watching. Thank you so much for taking your time yet again. It's an inspiring pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your interest. Ciao. Ciao. Det var min samtale med Ivan Krastev. De bøger af Krastev, som vi har udgivet, de hedder Efter Europa og Hvornår er det i morgen. De er begge udkommet på informationsforlag, og hvis man går ind på butik.information.dk, så kan man faktisk købe dem til en rigtig god pris. Hvis man nu er derinde, og man synes, det er så spændende at være med i det her univers af aktivisme, tænkning, undersøgelser af hele verdens drama, så kan man faktisk også skrive sig op til en måned gratis. Så kan man prøve dagbladet information. Den rapport, som vi taler meget om, hedder United West Divided from the Rest, Global Public Opinion One Year into Russia's War on Ukraine. Den kan man finde, hvis man googler den. Den her samtale var sat sammen og produceret af vores gode ven og hjælper, Mass Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med en anden ven af huset, nemlig Branko Milanovic. Økonomen, der er berømt for elefantgrafen, der viser udviklingen af ulighed i verden over de seneste og tiger. Han har nu skrevet en helt ny bog, som er en undersøgelse af tænkning af ulighed i de sidste 350 år. Jeg håber, I vil være med igen næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for nu.